Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Good morning. Y'all doing well? Two of you are. How y'all doing? You live? There you go. Hey, we're glad that you're here and excited to get to lean in here just a little bit. We are in Acts chapter 17 today. If you've got your Bibles or device, you want to look that up, we'd love for you to join us. Uh, But we're going to be walking through the last part of Acts 17. Uh, Friends, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in kind of complex and contested times. Uh, It doesn't seem like things all are together when you look around our world and when you look at the different uh, groups polling in different directions in our world. It seems as if there's a little bit of a tug of war going on. And I think sometimes it can be confusing for us to know exactly how we ought to feel in our world. I think, you know, we ever have this experience where you look around and, uh, you know, whether you're, you're watching a movie and all of a sudden this thing that should just be telling you a good story shifts into kind of propaganda mode and needs to promote some ideology or some idea. Or maybe you are, are walking to a place to shop and all of a sudden you figure out, man, these guys have a big time agenda that they're pushing down on me and all I wanted was to step in and get some groceries. Or maybe you're going uh, and you're listening to the radio and you hear the things that are coming across and, and as you begin to interact and you begin to see our world and you begin to see the way things are going, sometimes it could be a little bit abrasive to us and we look around and what we see is brokenness. We see people searching for meaning and for reality in all the wrong ways, and we begin to get frustrated with that. But on the other hand, we look around and we see beauty in our world, and we see people that are made in the image of God, and we have compassion and and love for them, and we want to reach out and connect with them. And so we've got this kind of weird thing that takes place, and this really shouldn't be surprising to us. This is a pretty normal thing. In fact, 10 years ago, when we Uh, created this little document. This was a prospectus that we created before we ever started a church. And we're writing uh, something that I wrote before we had ever begun meeting and tried to describe what what kind of church we wanted to be. And there's a statement in here that says, we do not attack our culture, acquiesce to our culture, nor hide from our culture. Rather, we redemptively engage with our culture. And that was the approach that we wanted to have was, I mean, we're not going to be the people who are just always on attack mode. We're not going to be people who are just on fold mode and allow the world to run over us. We weren't going to be people who hide in fear and shirked our responsibility to the world, but we we're going to be those who redemptively engaged with our world in a significant way. In fact, our mission statement as a church says that we want to make authentic disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. You know, there's an old phrase or joke that you say, like, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no, of no earthly good. And we want to be actually people that are redemptively engaged for the good of our world. And now, the opposite can also be true. Sometimes we get so comfortable in the world, we forget the holiness of heaven. And so there's this tension that we live in 
in the midst of a broken world where we say, man, we want to fight for the holiness of a God who's in heaven and is holy other than we are. But at the same time, man, we are broken and we live in the midst of broken people and we want to see them restored to right relationship with God. So this tug of war, this kind of complexity to our world, can you relate to that at all? You feel that as you walk through the streets of our world, as you watch the shows that come across, as you stream through social media, you ought to feel that tension kind of resonating with you. Well, today we're going to look at um, Acts 17. It really is a passage that's foundational to tell us kind of how we're going to operate, not just as a church, but as individuals who represent Christ's church in the world. Uh, this tells us how we all ought to operate in the midst of the tug of war that we experience. And eventually, I, I think it, this is also one of the reasons why th- this kind of core commitment for us is one of the reasons why we purchased a building in downtown Edmond. I think it's part of why God led us to that space was to fulfill and continue to live out that vision that he had given us for how we are to do this. Now, here's what we're going to see today. Acts 17 kind of gives us a model for how each of us ought to engage our world. And if we're going to engage our world for good in a real way, we're going to need to see three things. We're going to talk through these three today. We're going to need to learn to see and feel as God sees and feels. We're going to need to see as God sees and feel as God feels. Secondly, we're going to need to learn to build gospel bridges that connect to the love of God. And thirdly, we're going to need to learn to build gospel barriers that protect the truth of God. So those are the three things we're going to see today. So we're going to jump in and kind of read a long section here, but I just step back and imagine what this would have been like to unfold if you were Paul stepping into Athens, this amazing historic city for the first time, and imagine how this episode would have unfolded. We're going to start in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked frustrated within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know more about this new teaching that you're presented. For you, bringing, for you bring some strange things to our ears, but we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their times and time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious and spiritual, For as I passed along, I observed objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription. It says, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord over heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything it needs. And he made from one man every nation of of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel and find their way towards him. For he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man, 
but the times of ignorance are overlooked. But now God commands that all people everywhere repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked him, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord talking about Paul's first trip into Athens. Uh, what do you know about Athens? Athens is a famous historic city. It was the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. In fact, before the Roman Empire, it was the leading city of, the, of Greek political and cultural life. When Rome took over, Rome became the central political capital. But uh, Athens always remained the brain trust. It was always the intellectual hub of the modern world. It was the place where everything uh, kind of centered intellectually. And Paul is going to be engaged here with kind of the cultural elites of the world at that time. Now, it's an amazing situation when you begin to think about this. Paul starts at the synagogue, then it says he moved into the marketplace. Now, when we think about a marketplace, you may think of like the little farmer's market and some goods, and you go through to get some fresh fruit, something like that. That's not really what the marketplace was in that day. In fact, the marketplace was kind of the central connection point for the whole city. Uh, you think about where did they get news in that world? You know, they didn't get on social media and flip through their phone. They didn't get a newspaper delivered to their house. They went to the marketplace and they listened and said, hey, what's happening in your part of town? What have you heard from the people traveling from that other region? What do you know about this situation? And so it was kind of the news uh, kind of exchange of that world. It was also the place that the businessmen and the financial movers and shakers of the city would meet to connect and hobnob and rub shoulders and, and work deals. It was the place where uh, people got together to exchange ideas and debate. And, uh, you know, on, and now we get on, and if you have an idea, if you want to say, hey, have you read this book? Have you done this thing? We jump on social media and post and connect with people all over. There, they had to actually get face to face. So they went to the marketplace and they would talk about ideas and new things that were coming into the world. It was a place uh, where, where they debated and discussed all kinds of things. And then beyond the marketplace, there was another group that sometimes, what we're going to see for Paul, he's actually going to get taken from the marketplace. And we don't really know if he was invited from the marketplace to this thing called Mars Hill, or if he was sort of forced to go. But uh, the Areopagite was this group of people that was a council that met on a, a hill that was named after the god of war Mars. So it was the place called Mars Hill. And they would go, and it was where the intellectual kind of elites of that day debated everything. And people that had served in sort of political functions, when they finished their term, immediately got put on the council of the Areopagite. And so it was the place that they would go to debate. And these people were incredibly influential. They could actually issue warrants of death over someone for a crime that they committed. Uh, they also would debate ideas. They would kind of govern the religious rule and kind of tell people if they could listen to ideas or if they couldn't or kind of run someone out of town if they brought in false gods or false ideas that they didn't want to do. And so Paul is engaging with people in the marketplace, but he's pretty soon going to go to engage with these elites in Athens in this place called the Areopagite. Now, you, do you know the history of, of Athens and some of the philosophers that have been there in the past? Uh, the, there's this guy named Socrates. Uh, if you need a little more redneck, it's Socrates. Uh, but, but you had Socrates, you have Plato, you have Aristotle. 
These are the people that, that Paul is stepping into their footsteps and he's arguing and debating in the exact places that these great minds had once debated. Can you imagine what it would be like for Paul to step in and begin to discuss and to lead a conversation in the midst of this? Now, here's what's fascinating about what Paul did. It said Paul stepped right in and it says he started in the synagogue where people who were believers might have been. And then he went to the marketplace and began to interchange there. And then he went to this kind of place where the philosophers would all debate things. But he never really backed down, did he? It says that he reasoned with them. And that word reasoned, it's the same word that we get the word dialogue from. And so that word meant that there was some discussion. And Paul engaged them in a conversation that wasn't, was kind of back and forth, which that ought to be encouraging for you. Do you realize that at the very foundation of Christianity, when the early church was just starting, Paul did not shy away from stepping in with the greatest minds on the planet and saying, let me tell you about the gospel because I think the gospel can engage with the big ideas of our world and point you in actually a better direction. Paul didn't shy away. He wasn't fearful. Uh, he didn't doubt the gospel of Jesus had what it took to engage these big ideas. But you notice he also didn't preach or holler on a street corner. He didn't stand kind of off to the side of the marketplace and just scream and yell at people, but he engaged with them in a, in a respectable conversation. He also didn't fear them and shy away and just think, well, I don't think I could really, really have a conversation with them based on the gospel because I'm just a little guy and they're such big, important people. But Paul also had courage to step in and say, let me tell you about Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead. And Paul's gonna point them in a direction and so he doesn't have to hide or avoid people, um, but his confidence in the gospel made him also made him both humble and courageous. And friends, we need the gospel to do the same thing in our lives, don't we? Do you ever fear, feel fearful? Do you just think, man, I, I'm not sure that I know what to say to that person. I don't know how to engage them. I'm not sure I can answer all their questions. And so you're fearful and you think, well, maybe I'm not as smart as those people. Maybe, maybe they're really right. Maybe the gospel isn't true because they're really smart and maybe I can't engage. I think the gospel tells us we need to have confidence and be courageous to speak boldly for the truth of God. And yet at the same time, we, we come and we speak humbly because we know that we are men created in the image of God and we share in the brokenness of the whole world. So we're humble and courageous. So the first thing we're gonna see as we kind of walk through this passage, I mentioned this earlier, but the, the first thing we see that Paul, as uh, we kind of look at his approach to this group of people and his response, we see that Paul that the people who engage the world for good need to learn how to see what God sees and feel what God feels. What did Paul see and feel when he walked through Athens the first time? Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He, there's something that was disturbing to him. That word provoked means an inner anger. It means he was bothered or disturbed or disgusted what was it that got under Paul's skin? So he looked around and there were idols all throughout the city. There was false worship. There were false idols, false religions that were being propagated throughout the city. And, and, and as you walk through Athens, there's actually multiple temples that are, that are scattered throughout all the city to all these different gods. They were in many ways pantheistic and believe there were many different gods. And so these various temples were all over. And you walk through the city and there were statues of famous people and statues of God. There were square pillars and phallic symbols and busts of Hermes and Zeus and Athena and Apollo and others. And so as Paul is walking through this whole thing, he's just 
kind of disgusted by all the ideas that how can all these things be God and you guys miss the one true God who made you? And so Paul is pushing back against that. He's annoyed with what he sees and he feels compelled to show them the way to the one true God. Now here's what's interesting. That word provoked that Paul used or that's used to describe Paul there, it's a pretty rare word in the Bible. It's actually used in the Old Testament to describe exactly how God felt when he looked down on his creation that rejected him and ran after false gods. In fact, if you look at Isaiah 65, it says, and this is God speaking, God says, I was ready to be sought by people who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by people who did not even seek me. I said to them, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And God goes on to say, I spread out my hands all day, reaching out to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good and they follow their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually. You see what God says in that passage? He say, look, I made you. I love you. I care about you. I continually come to you and I reach out to you that you might find me and have a relationship with me. And though I'm the God of the universe that, that, that breathed life into you and sustains you and, and nurtures your life and reaches out to you, you continue to reject me and rebel and run after things that are not good. It says, you provoke me. It means you, you, you make me, you bother me and disgust me in the way that you respond to my action and you're doing it to my face continually. For God, it was personal. So what Paul sees when he looks at the city is he, see what, he sees what God sees. That, that God is reaching out to this people and they continue to reject him and rebel against him. Friends, do you ever look at our world and feel the same way? So what we see about Paul is that Paul had so run his life through a biblical filter that when he began to look at the world, he looked at everything through the lens of, of God's word that he had so absorbed this word into him that it shaped his eyes and the way he saw and it shaped his heart and the way he felt so that when he interacted and walked through our city, he felt what God would have felt and he saw what God would have seen and he reacts in the kind of way that God reacts and so he's provoked because people are rejecting the Lord. Now, here's, let me say kind of the obvious thing. Uh, when we walk through our city, we don't see a bunch of giant temples to other gods. We don't see a bunch of, uh, a bunch of busts or statues of, uh, of Greek and Roman gods and deities and Caesars that were called to worship. But do you realize that idols, and if you look at scripture, aren't just those false religions that are represented in gold or silver or, or concrete? Um, they're also uh, things that maybe we don't see exactly the same way. We, we don't see religious figurines, but you know, an idol can be anything that we put up and elevate in the place of God. In fact, idolatry means promoting a created thing to the place of the creator. It means that we take our goals or our relationships or our success or our pleasure or our comfort and we make those the ultimate values of our life that drive and that our life revolves around. And friends, let me ask you this. When you look at our city, do you see people sometimes whose lives revolve around wealth or pleasure or power or pride or sexuality or image, or performance. Of course you do. Those are idols, the scriptures say, because they become heart idols. And the fact is, these idols become just as captivating to our hearts as the idols that Paul saw in, in Athens. 
because they can just as much distract us from the one true God and keep us from worshiping and surrendering to him in exactly the same way. Friends, it's so easy for us to get used to our world and the world in which we live. You know, one of the things that causes conflict for my wife and I when we go on vacation, I remember the first time we went to Europe and we got to see Europe and we were driving on the Autobahn and we we're checking all these things out. And I just started like absorbing it all and taking it in. It was all new and I'm looking and I'm just commenting as we're driving. I'm like, oh, I like the way the roads do this. Oh, that street sign. I don't know about that. And what about that? And I start evaluating, critiquing and like there's things I'm like, oh, they did this way better than we do in America. Then there's other things I'm like, well, that's dumb. They shouldn't do that that way. And I'm doing this. And my wife finally looks at me and she goes, dude, can we just drive and enjoy the countryside? Uh, because, uh, you know, I, but I'm like, this is how I enjoy it. I'm just I'm making observations. I'm taking it all in. I'm evaluating everything. Uh, and something about when you go to a new place, do you experience that? Do you go to a new place and all of a sudden everything's alive? Because it just feels new and you're evaluating, you're seeing it all in a different way. I think that's what happens with Paul when he steps into Athens. As he steps into this new city, he's like, whoa, look at all this stuff. But what happens when you live there for years and years and years you just get used to it. You walk right by it. My son goes to school in, in Scotland right now. And, you know, you're saying when we first got there, you'd walk by and you'd, you'd immediately check out like the, the age of every building and every marker on the street and everything. But once you go to school there for a couple of years, you just start walking past stuff and you forget that this thing is, you know, a thousand years old and you don't even, you don't even process that as you're going past it because you just get used to it. And I think there's a danger of us sometimes living in our world that we get so comfortable and indifferent to the idols that are going on in our culture that we don't even recognize the fact that they are there. And sometimes we don't even recognize the fact that they are pulling us in to elevating them and making them idols of our own hearts as well. So what do we learn? So Paul had options when he, when he began to see the idols of that culture. You know, he could have just been angry and walked away from them in disgust, right? Like that would have been an option of what he could have done. He could have just been like, these people are idiots and I'm just gonna go back somewhere else and he could have left town. That would have been, a, that, that's one response he might've had. Uh, I think sometimes people in our world do the same thing. Just like that group is a bunch of idiots and I'm gonna neglect and I'm just gonna go stay away and create my own sort of huddle where I can avoid being any kind of connecting with them. Paul could have just condemned them and ranted with, condensation, uh, con, uh, with, with condemnation and rejection. He could have stood and just said, well, you guys are idiots and just screamed and yelled and kind of gone off on them and ranted about how dumb they were and how foolish they were. Uh, but Paul didn't do that. Now, the other thing he could have done, he could have also just accepted them as they were, ignoring their rebellion against God, ignoring God's holiness and pretending like nothing they're doing is wrong. Sometimes that's a response people have in our world to the idols that are around us. They just look and go, ah, oh, let's just look the other way, pretend like it's no big deal. Paul chose neither of those responses. He didn't run away. He didn't react in anger. He also didn't absorb and just uh, embrace all the ideas that were there. Instead, it says he reasoned with them. He engaged with them with the hard edges of God's truth, but in a helpful and hopeful way that reached out also with God's compassion and God's love. And this, I think, is really helpful. John Stott uh, I think we think about Paul and sometimes we put him in a different category. We think it would have been easy for him. I don't think it was easy for Paul. I think there was this tug of war going on in his soul as he did this. That it said he was perplexed and provoked internally. He had an inner anger about the stuff he saw. And yet he's going to reach out with compassion to those around him and wrestles through that. John Stott writes this. And this is convicting. He says, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul because we do not see like Paul. 
That was the order. He saw, he felt, then he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. The Greek verb used three times is, uh, means to consider, to reflect, to think. He looked and looked and thought and thought until the fires were kindled within. And isn't that good? That when Paul thought, he immediately saw and he reacted, but he began to, to think about those things and to ponder them and to wrestle with them. And he's, he thought, as he saw what was there, he began to feel and reflect those things. And then the, what he saw and what he felt eventually worked its way out in what he chose to speak to them and how it is that he approached them. So friends, maybe um, we, we tend to put people in a different category in the Bible, but I think that's what God's calling us to do as well. And I think for Paul, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have possibly been easy. In fact, what scriptures talk about here is it mentions some of the different groups that Paul had to engage with. One was uh, the Epicureans. These follow uh, the teachings of, uh, of Epicurus, who if you think about their view, they were really indifferent to God. They didn't care much about God because they said God's too disconnected and distant from our world to matter much. Meaning God's may exist, but they're in such a different, different realm that they don't really have any bearing here. And I know that doesn't seem very important to us, but these would have been like functional kind of secular agnostics. People very much like the people we interact in our world that just say, man, life is left up to the natural order of things. And so uh, one guy summarized their view and he says, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, good or pleasure can therefore be attained and evil or pain can be endured. These were happy hedonists. There were people that go, I mean, if, if God doesn't really care much about our world and death is just the end, then what should we do? We might as well get all we can in this earth. We might as well avoid as much pain as possible and enjoy as much pleasure as possible. Does that sound like anyone else in our world? See, these aren't, these aren't new ideas. Uh, these are old ideas that have been around forever. These are moral relativists that wanted to be free from constraints. Uh, for, you understand people had sex before 1960s, right? Like sexuality and sexual uh, deviance was not a new thing that just started in the last 50 years. This was something that in that world, they were trying to be free of constraints and enjoy as much pleasure as they possibly could. And so they were running after pleasure. And the problem was that this view oftentimes left people enslaved to their desires. And when they did, they found themselves in a place of emptiness and loneliness. And they found themselves in a place of despair, constantly feeling the weight of running after more pleasure and more pleasure and more pleasure to get new experiences and to numb the pain of it all. And so they began to run that way. Stoics, on the other hand, were kind of the other end. They were actually pantheists who argued for kind of a connection between God and, uh, God and people. So there was a divine spark in all of us and somehow God and the world were all somehow connected in this universal thing and God was a force that controlled everything but not a personal being that you could know. So Stoics were those who rejected the Epicureans and said, man, those guys are foolish running after pleasure. We want to be people who are disciplined. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be morally strong. And so they were very focused on duty and diligence and discipline and enduring suffering and the temperance of pleasure. In some ways, they were pessimistic about life. And they called people to stand tall in the face of pain and maintain a strong moral compass. Uh, these were conservative people. Now, the problem with Stoicism is, and studies show this, that most people weren't strong enough to actually live it out. So there was a moral obligation, but it was cold and hard because it was disconnected from any kind of relationship or any kind of heart connection, and it became a, a, a difficult master. And so Paul's engaging 
both of these people. And if we had time to unpack it, you can actually see how Paul's speech addresses both of these groups in a pretty radical way. Uh, but, but you notice what they call Paul. They're like, who is this babbler? Like, it sounds like he's talking about foreign gods. We don't even know what you're saying. We don't understand what it is. And so they drag him up to the, the, the big time thinkers of the world, the Areopagus, and begin to uh, make him kind of begin to present his message to that, that group of people. Now, I want to just think about this and kind of step back and set the scene a little bit. Um, you with me? How many of you think you're going to have to argue with Epicureans or, or Stoics today? Do you know that these ideas are actually making a, a, a kind of, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Make a resurgence. That's the word I'm looking for. They're making a resurgence. Uh, you see a, a lot of guys that, 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 that tend to be talking about Stoicism. It tends to be a reaction against our world and guys that are fighting for a more masculine view of the world are taking a more stoic approach to life. And so you actually see these ideas that are pushing forward. You see an Epicurean philosophy that's, that's oftentimes running through a lot of the things that are shaping our politics and our education and the way in which we think. And both of these ideas are still very prevalent. So I think it's important for us to lean in here. But if you think about Paul and what it would have been like to step in, I wanted to show you a couple pictures of where it was Paul was about to step. This place is called Mars Hill, and it fits right in under in the city of Athens. And when you think about the city of Athens, um, this was a, a giant plateau that takes place there. And if you see uh, the uh, if, if you see the Parthenon, that's kind of the famous figure at the at the top of Athens. Uh, the, the hill in which uh, which Paul is actually arguing is down a little bit just below that. But that's going to be kind of in the he's going to be in the shadow of the Parthenon. And it's pretty amazing to think about that being the, the place in which um, he was there and was called to go and speak. And so Paul is going to engage in this new, or in this conversation. Let's look at how Paul approaches and what he says. In verse uh, 22, look at how he begins to address them. It says, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, just underneath the Parthenon in that great city of Athens. He says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious or spiritual. Now, it's interesting that Paul starts off with his, his, his discussion. And you notice what he starts? He starts off looking for common ground. He's trying to build a bridge of connection to them. That's really the, the first thing that we're called to do if we're going to follow Paul's example. The people engage your world for good learn to build bridges to connect God's love to the people around them. And Paul, in the first part of his conversation, is going to constantly be trying to build bridges to try to build a connection so that they begin to see God's love for them. So he looks around and says, hey, way to go. You guys are very spiritual. That's good. Like you're on a good path. You're starting out right. That's a good thing to do. And then Paul, so he compliments them as, as much as he can. Now, later he's going to get to the hard stuff and say, hey, this good path you're on, it ought to point you to something else and you're not stopping, you're not going far enough. So you're really kind of ignorant and you're going to fall short. But he starts off and says, I want to commend you because you're being spiritual and you're moving in the right direction in terms of searching for a God. And then Paul looks around and he starts off with something familiar to them. He says, you know, when I was walking through the city, I looked over and I saw this statue and I read the inscription. The inscription said, to the unknown God. And he says, you know what? That's awesome. You guys recognize that you don't know everything. There's something you don't know. And so you even created a statue to this unknown God. And I want to tell you who that God is. So good job admitting and being humble enough to recognize you don't know everything. I want to tell you and kind of fill in the blanks for you. And so do you kind of see what Paul's doing? Uh, this is, is sort of a funny thing, the statue to an unknown God. Uh, because if you think about it from Paul's perspective, he's like, so uh, this is like a lawyer 
writing in, in the really fine print on like page 27 of some contract that you have to sign. He's putting in this little disclaimer that maybe people won't notice. And as he puts it in, he's hoping to just sneak it through. He's saying that's kind of what they're doing. We're like, man, we've got all these temples and all these statues to gods, to all these gods that are out there. But like, dude, what if we missed one? We hurt some God's feeling. And he comes down and he's like, where is my statue? And we just would be like, there it is. It's that one. That's the one. That's the one that we built for you. Um, as though a God that stepped into the world would want some kind of statue that's gotten like, it's like getting a gift that goes like to graduate. Like, you don't even know who I am. This is just like you re-gifted something and brought it to me, right? But there, there's something that is missing here. And Paul's, but what Paul's doing is he's looking for doorways into deeper conversations. Friends, do you ever do that with your conversations with your friends or your neighbors? You're looking for doorways through songs or through movies or through conversations or through things in our world or through sunsets. You realize all of those things could be doorways that we begin to have a conversation with people about the one true God and begin to point them in a different direction. Paul's moving from something familiar to something unfamiliar. And he wants to begin to talk to them about the one true God. He's going to point them in that direction. Now, Paul's argument goes like this in verses 24 and 25. He says, look, if God's a creator, uh, the God who made everything, including humans, he can't be contained to shrines and he can't be described by an idol. Meaning if God, if, like just, Paul's like, just step back. Like if God really created the earth and he put the oceans and the tides in motion and he causes the sun to rise and fall, do you think he's gonna walk up to your statue and be like, that's amazing. Like he did the Alps and the Rockies. Like your little stone thing isn't gonna be impressive. He's not gonna be like, woohoo, you guys are amazing. You crafted a little gold trinket and put my name on it. He's like, God, the God of the universe who's created and sovereign over all can't be contained by human hands and human artwork and human things. You guys have got it all backwards. You're trying to create these things in your image and create and decide what God must be like based on who you are. When you need the exact opposite, you need to step back and go, man, God, you tell us who you are. You're the one that sets the agenda. You're the one that sets the tone. You're the one that gets to tell us what we are supposed to be like. We don't get to kind of argue the other way up. So Paul reverses everything and begins to contradict them. He says, God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. We're the ones who need God. Verse 26, he says, and God made from one man, every nation on mankind to live on the face of the earth. Uh, the people of Athens were pretty arrogant and prideful. Like it really was the pinnacle and they knew it. They knew like this is the center of the greatest thinking on the planet. And they realized that and they disgusted, they were disgusted with people that they called the barbarians. Like look at those people, man. They're just like savages. They're like animals. They're not real people. They don't think like we do. And uh, Paul is subtly coming at them, isn't he? You realize all people of the nations are created by one man, by one God, and through the offspring of one, uh, one creation. He wants them to know God is bigger and better than anything they ever imagined. In fact, he says, do you realize that that God, he told you where it was you were going to live. He set the times in which you would live, and he set the boundary marks of the place in which you'd live. Meaning you didn't like birth yourself into the world and say like, I want to be born in this time and in Athens. God did that. Like you didn't get to pick where you was you lived. God just says, I'm going to birth life in you and I'm going to do it at this time and in this place. But you didn't pick it. God chose it for you. 
You were just a creature, a creature or creation that he put into the world. So God is bigger and better. He's sovereign over everything. He doesn't take his cues from us, but he, he sets humanity in the world and he determines and sets all the boundaries of our, of our lives. Next, it says God is closer, more available to them than they ever realized. Verse 27, he says that they should seek God, meaning God created him and so that they might seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Friends, this is incredibly important to our understanding. See what he's saying is God is, God is sovereign and bigger than anything you ever imagined. He's over all and he created it all. And yet he cares about you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And he's close by you. And he might be found by you. And he wants to be sought by you that you might have fellowship with him. So the sovereign, giant, ginormous God of the universe is also close and cares personally about you. And Paul wants them to understand both of those things. That word seek means to grope or find. Sometimes it's used of a blind person groping. And Paul wants them to understand that it's personal, that you have to go seek him out. That though you might recognize him as creator, that's not enough, but you need to run after him. In fact, then Paul brings two kind of connections from pop culture in their world. He quotes this guy. We don't know where this quote came from, but he says, in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets say, for indeed we are his offspring. We actually know where the poet, uh, the last line of poetry comes from, but he's just quoting two things for them, kind of this religious pop culture kind of reference that they all would have known and this poetry that they all would have known. And he says, God is close to you and you need to know who he is and where, uh, where it is that you can seek him. And he's trying to point them in that direction. I think that's instructive for us too. Somehow he's trying to find common ground for them to understand where it is that they can seek the Lord. He's saying is these are all signposts that ought to point you in the direction of the Lord. You should run after him. Now, thirdly, people engage our world for good. will learn not just to build bridges to connect God's love, but to build barriers to protect God's truth. Verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as, as gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art by the imagination of man. That's what Paul says. He says, we. He includes himself with them, doesn't he? He says, look, if, if we're gonna approach God, if we're gonna seek him, if we're gonna grope after him and try to find him, we all need to learn how to seek him. We need to let him set the standard and set the cue for how it is that we're to run after him. We don't get to call the shots. We have to trust him. And I'm in the same boat with you. So he identifies with them. And then he's gonna offer this kind of biblical critique of the idolatry in Athens. In fact, <clears throat> what he's saying is that you are ignorant in the way in which you sought these things, meaning you did the best you could, but it wasn't enough. That ultimately the pot doesn't tell the potter what to do, uh, but the, the man who created the pot uses it however he wants. He cry, uh, God is the potter. We're just the clay that he's, that he's created. So we need to trust his way in understanding it. Verse 30, he says, he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn around. So he's saying that God sometimes has allowed you to run forward in your, in your ignorance, but he's coming and there's a day coming where he won't and he's gonna call you to judgment. And so you've got an amount of time. You need to turn around and trust God. There he's fixed a day on which he will judge. And what Paul is saying is, he's talking to this group of people and saying all of history is linear. Realize that God 
created, that, that, that all of the creation was started by one man, or, came, or one God and created through one man. And that creation began and it's been unfolding for all the time. But all that time is going to move forward until there's a final point in history where he is going to send one that he has appointed to judge the living and the dead. And it's Christ who's resurrected is the one that's able to judge. And so he's pointing them to the sovereign God and the judgment that will come. And it's interesting that when he does this, he also reminds them a bit of good news, verse 31, that this he has given, or by this, he's also given assurance to all people by raising that judge from the dead. So he gives good news and he gives bad news. The bad news is, and time has an end. It is a fixed point where all people would be judged for what they did and all people need to repent and turn and run to the Lord. Yet, you also have hope because there's a God who is resurrected. And because he was resurrected, that means he, God wants you to flourish. And so the resurrection God is ultimately God's attestation or his assurance to all people that God wants to bring about their good and flourishing if they will simple, simply turn around and trust him. And so that's his kind of final best argument. Now what's happening, what happens here is pretty interesting because he doesn't actually get to finish his speech. That as soon as he mentions the resurrection, all the, the philosophers there go, oh, what in the world, what's going on? Because they didn't believe in a resurrection. They thought time ended and when you died, you died and nothing happened or the world recapitulated and did uh, kind of started over completely, but they didn't believe in a personal resurrection. So they stop it and we see three different responses that take place. Some of them begin to mock Paul. Uh, some of them say, I want to hear more about this. So they're trying to keep an open mind. And then you see some who actually believe and you see this reaction that takes place. So friends, let me ask you this question. How do we engage? I know that's been a lot of content and it's a lot of deep stuff because Paul is engaging with the deep thoughts of his day. And I think it's easy to kind of run past that and go, well, that was good for Paul. But let me just ask you, how are you doing with this? How are you doing as you walk through the city of our world, as you walk through our day? Because what we see Paul say is there's a God of love who seeks a relationship with us is also a God of justice who will punish those who try to coerce him and manipulate him and ignore him and rebel against him. But the work of Christ satisfies both the judgment of God through the love of God. And he wants us to reach out to people. Friends, do you see what God sees and feel what God feels when you look at our world? I think it's important for us to, to just be honest about the complexity of our feelings. I mean, do you ever get frustrated when you look at something that goes on in our world? When you see the way in which people are living, when you see the way people are thumbing their noses at God, when you see the way that they spit at Christians or the, the way in which they reject kind of biblical ideology and they, they fight against it and they talk about it as though it's purely bigotry or, or purely outdated ideas or old school stuff that you know, we should have left behind by now and they don't, they don't understand the heart of the scriptures and what it's really about. Do you sometimes get frustrated by that? Are you provoked inside and have some internal angst about the things that you see in our world? I think you ought to. Because there's a holy God who has spoken and he's breathed life to us and he's created us and he's given us a word and he's shown us how it looks like to live in honor of him and people continue and he continues to reach out to them and says, I'm right here if you will turn to me. And they rebel and they run and go their own way and ignore him. So there ought to be something provoked in us and we ought to learn to see what God sees and see through the biblical filter like Paul did and see the idols that are all around us and the false worship and what hurts us and causes us sorrow 
is that when we see that, we know where it ultimately leads the people that are following in this path. And we know it leads to a judgment and leads to a destruction. So we're brokenhearted by that. Friends, we need to see what God sees and feel what God feels. And then the last two points, that we need to build bridges that connect both God's love and we need to commit, we need to build barriers that protect God's truth. Friends, we are the people who understand that God is holy and his truth is to be protected. We need to protect that which is true and protect God's ways as that which is trustworthy and that which is still to be lived even in this day. And yet in the midst of that, we're also those who say, like Jesus, when we look at our city, I'm filled with compassion and love for the people around me. And so I want to build bridges that connect people to God's love. Friends, which side do you tend to fall off on? When you think about your own life, do you tend to fall off on the side that says, man, I just want to protect God's truth. I'm fearful, I'm I'm frustrated, I'm angry. But you sometimes neglect God's love. Or are you those that are compassionate and God's loving, but you sometimes want to acquiesce and give in and, and not take a stance against those that would fight against God's truth? We need to do both. I think it's important for us to think about it in that regard. Let me, let me just close with this. Friends, we want to be like Paul uh, because Paul was like Jesus. You notice when Jesus looked down upon the world and he saw the brokenness, he, he saw where, it was headed, where we were headed, he saw all the, da- the damage it was causing in the midst of our world, but he also saw the destruction it was going to bring to us. He did not remain aloof, but Christ became one of us. He came and lived amongst us in order to rescue us He died sacrificially to pay the penalty for our sins and he was resurrected to proclaim victory and new life and to make that available to us. So we want, so that's where we experience our salvation. We want to live like that in the world. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I just feel even right now the, just the immensity of everything that Paul was talking about in this text. And Father, it can be overwhelming It can feel like a lot to absorb. It can feel like a lot to process. We just ask that your spirit would enlighten us, that you would somehow take that which is true in the scriptures and make it true in our hearts. Father, would you make us people who love you as you are, who love your holiness, who will fight for your truth, who stand for that which scripture is taught. Father, we we inherit the, the stance of Paul in that regard. But Father, also, would you make us those who build bridges of love to our city, who have great compassion, who know of our own brokenness and are humble and desire for all people to be saved. So Father, I pray that you'd make us light in our city, both that are full of truth and full of love at the same time. Father, do so because of Christ and for Christ. Father, in the name of Christ, we pray. Thank you.